Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. So encouraged by the presence of all of you. Many of our members are not able to be here this morning for various reasons. So those of you who are visiting, we're so thankful for your presence to fill some of the seats that were empty. We're encouraged by your presence. We want you to know that uh, you are our welcome guests. And it is our aim, uh, those of us who are members of this local fellowship, to be well-pleasing to God, to come together collectively and to practice those things collectively that we find in God's Word and to limit our activities to what we find in God's Word. And if you have any questions about the things that we engage in this morning or about the message that's delivered this morning, we encourage you to ask. Um, and we just want you to know, first of all, that you're welcome and we're happy you're here. I appreciate very much David you read Psalms 23, and that has such a calming effect on me. And many times before I preach, I'll actually turn to that psalm and try to steady my soul. And, and it's a great, great words of comfort. One of my favorites for sure, and I appreciate that uh, we did that. You did a good job of leading our minds in the partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. So blessed to be able to gather here in His name this morning. We've been talking about for some time now in uh, the letter to the Galatians and also on our Wednesday night study, this concept of the law, the law that God has for man, and mainly in reference in Galatians to the law of Moses that we've been talking to and how some of the uh, Jewish believers in Jerusalem were trying to influence the Gentile believers uh, in the region of Galatia to uh, be circumcised and to carry on some of the aspects. They were fine with them being Christians, but they weren't fine with it just being uh, the gospel. They wanted them also to, uh, in essence, become Jews and to be circumcised and to adhere to some of those uh, ideas of aspects of the law. And we've been talking about the difference between law-keeping as a legalistic sort of idea, or the system of faith in which the gospel has brought to us and that we talk about. And what we haven't done, we did a little bit this morning, is talk about the effect that that can have. If we have a wrong view of how we approach Christianity, about how we approach our walk with Christ... Uh, what that will lead to, what that will actually look like. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And I thought it would be good for us to look at the parable that Jesus gave over in uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we're going to look at that in a moment. And Cameron read that account for us earlier. And we'll probably read it again before we discuss that. But uh, that's going to be our focus this morning. Trusting in our righteousness or trusting in Christ? In the movie, and I probably should have consulted with Gerald on this to make sure that I got this right, but I'm sure he'll uh, correct me if I get anything wrong afterwards. But in the movie Saving Private Ryan, eight soldiers are sent on a mission to find Private Ryan and have him sent home immediately. 
And the reason for this dangerous mission is that Ryan is the youngest of four brothers, and the other three have all been killed in the war within a few days of each other. And so to spare the mother the grief of losing all of her children in the war, priority is given to finding Private Ryan and getting him out of the war and home. And that's why these men were sent on this special mission to do this. And it was a dangerous mission. In the end, all eight soldiers had sacrificed their lives to save Private Ryan. And as Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is dying, his last words to Ryan are, earn this, earn it. Ryan goes on to live his life with this weight of trying to be worthy of the sacrifice of eight lives. Many years later, as an old man, he desperately seeks to feel that he had earned their sacrifice. And he begs his wife to tell me, just tell me I'm a good man. A Christian reviewer of this movie saw the Christian message in this, what he thought to be the Christian message in this. He enthusiastically wrote, one character gives his life for another and instructs him to be good and to remember the sacrifice made for him. The saved one remembers this for the rest of his life, feeling unworthy. Very seldom does one, he writes, very seldom does one see so many Christian themes in a big-budget Hollywood movie treated in such a serious manner. And he is thrilled to see so many Christian themes being treated seriously in a big-budget, well-produced movie. The problem is what he describes as being Christian themes simply are not Christian themes. I think a lot of people view Christianity in that light, in that way. But the picture of a man living his life with the weight of trying to earn what was given to him and tormented by the thought that he wasn't a good enough man to justify it, is that the Christian message? Is that the message of the gospel? Is that the concept that we have? That's the concept that I used to have. Is that what the gospel is trying to get across? And that's what we've been spending a lot of our time looking at in the letter to the Galatians and in our study on Wednesday night. The thing that sort of prompted me to approach the lesson from this aspect is one of the Most of you know I own a small janitorial business, and my biggest account is a school, an education wing of of a big church over in Platte Woods, and they have an education wing that we are contracted to clean. And in each one of the classrooms, they have these carnival mirrors. You know the carnival mirrors where the glasses are is curved. Um, that's what kind of prompted this. 
So you remember those mirrors. They would completely distort your image when you stood in front of them. One mirror would make you look 10 feet tall, and another mirror would make you look 3 feet tall. And depending on the curve of the glass, you might look really thin, or you might look really heavy. What they never did was give you an accurate view of yourself or those around you. And I was in one of those classrooms, and I happened to catch my image in the corner of my eye, and I looked back over at it, and I'm like, it caught the curve of the glass where my belly was gone. I was like, whoa, this disciplined diet of overeating and no exercise is paying off. And, but then I went into the restroom, and there was an actual mirror there. I was like, oh, okay, that's not real. That's a distorted image. And that's the concept uh, that we're going to talk about this morning. Spiritual pride is a lot like that carnival mirror. Distorting our perception of ourselves, of others, and more importantly, of God. Spiritual pride bends the glass to make us look far better than we do. Others look worse than they do. And God look far closer to us than he really is. Spiritual pride curves the glass so that we think we have it all right. When the truth is, we may have it all wrong. This parable is for those who are looking in the mirror of spiritual pride. For those who trust in their righteousness and look down on others. And Jesus loves us enough to hold up the mirror of God's word, God's truth, to give us a true reflection of ourselves, of others, and most importantly, of God. So in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the great thing about this is we don't have to guess. On a lot of the parables, he doesn't give the reason for the parable or why he's speaking the parable. But right at the beginning of chapter 18, it says who he, was, who he had in mind when he delivered this parable. It says in verse 1, Then he spoke a parable to them. Actually, verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So we know. We know who he has in mind. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to try to figure out who he's got in mind when he's delivering this parable. So just as a reminder, what is a parable? Many times we describe a parable as it's been said it's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's a pretty simplistic way to put it. The word parable itself is the putting together of two Latin words. Para, meaning beside or alongside, and ballo, that's where we get our word ball. Uh, Ballo means to throw. A ball is something to be thrown. So parabolo, something that is thrown down beside, Literally, that's what the word, that's the etymology of the word parable. So what is a, the use of a parable in teaching, in, in uh, Jesus' ministry? He uses this method a lot. 
Well, there is a truth that he wants to get across by delivering this story. So he takes this story and throws it down beside a truth that is to be received. That's the idea of a parable. That's why parables were given. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men walk into the temple. And like all of us, they have their own sense of reality about themselves, about others, and about God. Jesus helps us see them from their own perspective, and then he raises us up to see it all from God's perspective. And that's the benefit now for us looking in at this, and trying to make some application to our lives. So let's consider first the Pharisee. Without too much preliminary on that, I trust that uh, we're all fairly familiar with that word Pharisee. Pharisees, if you were to call somebody a Pharisee today, is that a flattering thing to call somebody? It's not. We sort of use that as uh, a term that would identify somebody who is a hypocrite, maybe, somebody who's play-acting about what they do, somebody who is self-righteous, somebody who tends to elevate themselves above other people. So it's not a flattering thing today if we were to call somebody a Pharisee. Well, what about then? Was a Pharisee a pretty impressive position to be held? Was Was that looked at in Jewish society as... These are sort of the top rung of society among the Jews. People would look to the Pharisees, these religious experts in the law, and these holy men. It was among the people, they were regarded as people who were religious and were right with God. That's what the people thought. Some of the harshest words that Jesus ever had for anybody, and we're not going to take time to look at that account of Jesus um, sort of chewing out the Pharisees, but you remember what he called them? He called them a brood of vipers. That's what John called them, a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. That's not very flattering. Jesus knew who the Pharisees were, and he knew what they were responsible for, the misleading of so many people, and the arrogance and the 
religious hypocrisy that they were engaged in, they could have been people who were leading people as lights, which God intended for the Jews to be to those around them. But instead, they were leading people uh, in the wrong direction to have the wrong idea about what the law was and what the law intended to do for mankind. The Pharisees stood out as a sore spot in New Testament revelation. Pharisees were law keepers. Their emphasis was on the law. They even had traditions that went beyond the law that they practiced. These were people that had gardens where in the corner of their gardens they'd have herbs And they would even tithe those herbs to the closest degree. They wanted to be accurate in their law-keeping, and they put great emphasis on that. And like I said, they even had traditions that went beyond that, that they tried to bind upon people uh, to add to the burden that people already had. And so the Pharisees, um, these were the religious people. They would love religious gatherings. They would be dressed in all of their holy garb, their robes. They would love to be seen by men as these pious religious people. They would be front and center, and they wanted to be noticed as being pious and religious. And they would say their prayers in public, and they wanted to bring attention to themselves as being holy and as being right with God. This Pharisee, turn over just to give a little more on that. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I want to take a look at that before we proceed. This is Paul making his plea uh, for Israel and recognizing the zeal that Israel had for the law and for being the people of God, and his hope that they would see the gospel of Christ and what that would mean for them. And this, the language that is used in these verses, I think sums up very accurately the mistake that can be made by looking at the law as the end, as the keeping of the law, as that thing that we look to to become righteous before God. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Could Paul bear witness to Israel accurately? Yeah. Remember his credentials? He was a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. We're going to talk more about that later. He was able to say with knowledge because he was there. He was a Jew, zealous for the law, just like his countrymen. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I want to zero in on that third verse. We could talk a lot about those verses, uh, but we're going to, just to get the point that we're trying to get here for this message. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. What does that mean? Were they ignorant that God was righteous? Is that what that's saying? 
that word being ignorant of God's righteousness, that's genitive. That whole phrase there means the righteousness that originates from God. How God makes man righteous is what they're saying. For they being ignorant of how, this is how it would read, for they being ignorant of how God makes man righteous, but they were seeking to establish their own method of righteousness. God has revealed in the gospel how he makes man righteous. And that's through that whole concept of justification by faith. It is through this faith, through Jesus Christ and his atoning work, that God makes it possible now for mankind to be righteous. But man, on the other hand, the Jews were sort of held up in example of this, those who rejected the gospel, as being ignorant. They were looking at the law as that end, that purpose, that aim that God was looking at. If I just keep the law, then I will have a righteousness of my own to stand before God and he will accept me. That's the concept. But they didn't understand that the law was simply showing their condition before God, that they were sinners, that they didn't keep the law, and that they had a need for something beyond that. That's what it should have made them look to. The Pharisee thinks he's really tight with God. He's good, he's spiritual, he's mature, he's dedicated, he's obedient, he's better than the next guy. He belongs to the right group of people, he's got the right name, and he's practicing the right law and the right things. Can we do the same thing? Can we have confidence in having the right name and being a part of the right group of people with the right name and practicing the right things and have that be the sole focus of our confidence? If we do, I would suggest to you We're no different than the Pharisee here. And we can see this from the prayer that flows from his heart. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. From the Pharisees' prayer, we can see three things about spiritual pride. Number one, it's self-focused. His prayer is all about himself. One person put it this way. He glances at God, but contemplates himself. God isn't the focus of this prayer. He is. Pride gets us focused on ourselves. There is a Latin phrase, incurvitus se, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It could be inservitus se. And that means the inward curve of sin. Sin revolves us around ourselves. Spiritual pride is just sin dressed up in religious garb. Spiritual pride is self-focus 
with a little God talk sprinkled in. It is a glance at God, but a constant contemplation of ourselves. Spiritual pride fixes our eyes on ourselves rather than on Jesus. One of the important ways the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through the Word is by getting our eyes off of ourselves to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We aren't transformed by constantly looking at ourselves, but by looking to Christ. Spiritual pride is self-focused. I would suggest to you that churches, entire churches, can be self-focused. And, and I'm not saying this to be accusatory or uh, to criticize in an unhelpful way, but I think a lot of times you can see the focus of a church by what lessons are preached and by what Bible classes are, you know, I've known of churches who 99% of the lessons were geared toward Christian living. An emphasis, a focus on how well I'm performing. Are you measuring up to this standard, to this level? We are justified by grace. We are justified by faith. We are justified by works, as James says. We are justified by the blood of Christ. All of those elements of justification are in that If you eliminate any of those elements of justification, do you have justification? I would suggest you don't. Some people will focus on that works aspect of justification. And it's not just works out here, but it is works that is tied to this faith that is being talked about, that justification by faith. It's just not works doing the law, but it's that faith faith that comes out of recognizing what has been done for us. It's a difference in the attitude of how we see it and how we do. All of those elements, though, if we spend 99% of our time emphasizing that aspect of Christianity, what message do we get across? That our performance is the main thing. That's the message that comes across. Our focus is in It's on us. Now, do we have a part in all of this? Are we just neutral, lay back and let God do His work and let me receive all your blessings? Of course not. We're not saying that. But there can be such a focus on our performance and our Christian living. You know, you can go through and look at all the lessons and what they're geared toward. And again, I'm not saying this just to be critical of groups, but that can be a demoralizing thing to have our focus be on us. And we'll talk about what that leads to. Spiritual pride trusts in what we do. Luke says that Jesus told this parable to people who trusted in their own righteousness. And we see that with the Pharisee. He's all about what he does and doesn't do. He does fast. He doesn't extort. Who do you think he's talking about that extort? 
Remember the tax collector who's standing afar off? That's who he's talking about. He even names the tax collector later on, but I don't extort like that fella over there because that's what tax collectors were known for. He does tithe. He doesn't commit adultery. He isn't unjust. He doesn't even stoop as low as the tax collector standing on the other side of the temple. Now, just to be clear, it's good to fast for the right reasons. It can be beneficial. That practice can be a beneficial thing, depending on why we're doing it. And to ta- those giving, all of those emphasis, those things that we're talking about that he does, we're not saying those are bad things that we shouldn't be involved in. They're good. Not to extort, not to commit adultery, those are things that we shouldn't be engaged in. That's true. The problem here isn't with what he's doing and not doing. The problem is he's trusting these things to make him right with God. Spiritual pride takes inventory of what we do and don't do and takes pride in that inventory. We find our trust leaning on what we do rather than what Christ has done. The Pharisee is a legalist. He is trusting his own righteousness to make him right with God. Spiritual pride looks down on other people. That's what contempt is. It's looking down on people. Do you realize that two-thirds of his prayer is a put-down of other people? Jesus says he stands by himself. Even back then, this Pharisee was practicing social distancing. Not to avoid a virus, but to avoid getting tainted by the sins of those kind of people. We should be concerned when we start distancing ourselves from people just because they don't agree with us. Remember the criticisms that were leveled against Jesus in his ministry? Look at the kind of people. Remember over in Luke chapter 4, or Luke 5, make reference to that. We'll refer to that later. But the the criticisms that were leveled against him by those religious leaders by those Pharisees and the legalists, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Look at the kind of people that he's hanging out with. Publicans and sinners, those specifically. He's hanging out with publicans and sinners. And that word sinners means Gentiles, Gentile sinners. These aren't even our countrymen. Look at the kind of people that he's hanging out with. We should be concerned when we start looking down on people because we don't think they're as spiritual as we are. We need to be concerned when we start to put people down in order to make us feel better about ourselves. We need to be concerned when we cast people in the worst light in order to put ourselves in the best light. A lot of the conflicts in the church aren't over disagreements. Christians can disagree over things that aren't foundational truths of the gospel. It's not disagreement 
that separates and divides. It's pride that causes us to divide and put down and be suspicious and question motives. It's okay when we have disagreements. And we should seek to talk about those and communicate on the disagreements. But it's pride that causes us to divide and to put down and to be suspicious of each other and to question each other's motives. I find, and again, this lesson, I'm not just preaching at people. This, this is for me. I find that I can be quite magnanimous towards people's differences until they differ with me. Until they criticize something that I do. Until they question my motives. And then I find a lot of junk can rise up in my heart. The Pharisee walks into the temple impressed with himself and confident that God is impressed with him too. And if this Pharisee were here listening to this message, he'd be agreeing with everything that I'm saying, but he'd think that none of it applied to him because he has his act together. That is his perception of reality. He sees a distorted image of himself in that carnival mirror. Now let's look at the tax collector, publican. The tax collector back in this time, and with, without, again, too much preliminary, but we do want to identify who we're talking about. What was a tax collector during this time in human history? Um, as you know, the Jews were under the control of the Roman government. But Rome allowed the Jews a great deal of latitude in managing their own affairs. They even adhered to their own law. Their law was their civil guide to govern them civilly as they uh, lived under Roman control. The only thing that they couldn't do in their law was exercise that capital punishment in the law. The Romans didn't allow that to happen. That's why they had to appeal. They had to trump up some different charges against Jesus so that Rome would find him in violation of their law so that they could put him to death under their law. And so they trumped up different charges than they originally had against Jesus to make it seem like he was violating Roman law and it was punishable by death. But anyway, under Roman law, there were, under Roman rule, there were taxes that were collected for the goods that went across uh, the borders of the area. And those who uh, were the tax collector were Jews themselves. And these Jews were given the opportunity to bid on the right to collect Roman custom, Roman taxes, on behalf of Rome from their own countrymen. So needless to say, these publicans, these tax collectors, were looked at as the worst kind of traitors. They were looking, looked at as turncoats against their own countrymen. And so they were collecting taxes for Rome, but not only did they collect what Rome required, 
They also sought to extort their own countrymen, and they would try to get more taxes out of them and put it in their own pockets. That's why many of the publicans were pretty well off. They had a lot of money. They were extorting their own brethren. That's why the Pharisee pointed out not extorters like this guy. That's, that's the tax collectors. If the Pharisees were at the top rung of social, uh, the social setup, among the Jews, then the tax collectors would have been looked at at the bottom. They were the worst of the worst. And certainly these people were not God's people. These were turncoats, traitors to their country, who turned on their own countrymen. The tax collector walks in, and Jesus says he stands afar off. And it's not pride It's shame that has him standing far away by himself. He can't even lift his eyes toward heaven. Shame has him pray with his eyes to the ground. And it's real shame. He really is a sinner. And he recognizes it. And all he can bring himself to ask God for is mercy. He doesn't bargain with God. He recognizes his condition and his complete dependence on God for mercy. Many years ago, I watched the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I would just say, you know, it's controversial. I'm not saying you need to watch this movie to appreciate what Jesus suffered and endured. Um, on the cross and leading up to the cross, not saying that at all. Um, The scriptures is fully able to get that across. But sometimes to get a visual can be helpful. I'm not suggesting that's needed or necessary, but I did watch the movie many years ago, and it's a tough movie to watch. And I found my heart tremendously moved as I considered what Jesus endured in my place. Our sin isn't small. If you wonder whether your sin is a big deal or not, just consider what Jesus had to suffer to save you from it. Self-righteousness might acknowledge sin and that we're sinners, but it rationalizes. Our sin isn't that bad. It's manageable. Actually, it's not manageable. Jesus died for your sin and mine. And we won't realize how much we need mercy until we realize how bad our sin is. Jesus loves to give mercy to those who ask it. Chances are the tax collector probably thought that God was pretty impressed with the Pharisee and looked down on him. That may have been his perception of reality. Jesus then authoritatively takes us upward into heaven and tells us God's perspective. Jesus knows how God views these two men. It was the tax collector 
who asked for mercy, who left the temple justified. His sin was blotted out, his prayer was pleasing to God and answered. And he is the one who actually had a right understanding of who God is and who he is. He was the one who sought a relationship with God because he came not trusting in his own righteousness, but was seeking God's mercy. And Jesus ends by giving us an accurate mirror to see ourselves. And we'll get to that in a minute. I want to talk a little bit more about this idea. And I I don't want to be misunderstood here. I don't want to come across like you can look at this parable and remember what a parable is and what its purpose was. Was a parable to fully expound upon the doctrinal idea of how to be right with God? Is all of those elements involved in this parable? No, he's simply looking to the attitude that drives those things. Some will point to this parable and say, look, all you got to do is say to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever heard the sinner's prayer? It's pretty prominent. There is a, watching on the Fox News channel, they'll have commercials with uh, Franklin Graham delivering a uh, Christian message, and it's an invitation. And he invites people to say and the sinner's prayer, basically. Invite Jesus into your heart, and it's kind of this concept. And they'll look to this parable and say, well, this is how you do it. You just ask for God's mercy, and he'll grant it, and that's all you got to do, and that's where it's left. Is that the concept? Well, when I go to Jesus and God... Do I go to him on his terms or on mine? And I think when, when we talk about the sinner's prayer, inviting Jesus into our hearts, who does the inviting? Isn't it Jesus that did the inviting? That's not on my terms. I don't decide, Jesus, come into my life. No, he's inviting us. And it's on his terms, on the basis of what he says And how do I do that? How do I respond to that? Well, I've got to look at the whole revelation to understand that. How how does faith come? How can I put my trust and belief in who Jesus is and invite Him and be a part, have Him be a part of my life? Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I want to get to God, but I can't because my sins. Well, Jesus says, I'm the way to do that. You can have your sins removed and you can go to the Father through me. That's good news. But what else does he say? Remember over in John chapter 6? He says, no one comes to me. You can't even get to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, what does that mean? And he goes on to explain, for they shall all be taught of God. There is a teaching. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's something that I got to know to believe and put my trust in. It's not just something where I just invite Jesus in and then all is good and taken care of. And I recognize that I need mercy. That's all good. 
But he's the one who has made known how that happens. How can I come in to that relationship with him? So we want to make clear that we're not just isolating this parable and saying, okay, the one who says, God have mercy on me, a sinner, that that's all that's revealed on the matter. There's a whole lot of other stuff that's revealed, but it indicates the heart, and that's what the emphasis is. It's the heart of the person who is trusting in his own righteousness and his own performance and his own ability to keep God's law and even go beyond God's law like the Pharisees did to demonstrate how good they were and now God should receive me on that basis or recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt. We're broke. And I'm coming to God with that attitude, not with a self-righteous pride. And that's the difference. That's what this parable is trying to get us to be able to see. Jesus ends by giving us an accurate mirror to see ourselves, to see others, because when we recognize we're all in the same boat, we all have the same spiritual condition, the same problem that plagues mankind in sin, and the consequences of that, We all have that. How does that make me look at my other brother? Am I elevated to a position above that where I would look down on my fellow man? Not if I'm seeing it through the eyes of Christ. In my own eyes, I may say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. But I'm measuring myself by the wrong standard. This is the secret of the kingdom of heaven that this parable reveals. This is the heart of God that this parable reveals. When we promote ourselves, God will put us down. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. Remember the Apostle Paul? At one time in his life, by his own admission, he fit Jesus' description of the Pharisee in this parable. Turn over, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll take a quick look at that. Remember Paul's credentials that we referred to earlier? I'm going to skip over to verse 4, Philippians 3. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's how he viewed himself. But what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He looks at the the self-righteousness, the confidence that he had in being a part of the right group, who was practicing the right law, who was doing all the right things. He counted all that rubbish and garbage. He threw it away. 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness was, which is from God by faith. Trusting Christ also means trusting Him with who we are. Believing that as we look in the true mirror and see reality as God sees it, and the only way to do that is to look into His Word. And then we'll see ourselves as deeply loved sons and daughters. And we will see others as people God loves and values. So much so that Jesus died for them. And we'll see God as a kind, compassionate Father who loves to give mercy to those who ask. Let's ask. It may be that we have some here with us this morning that are not yet in a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Do you believe that He died for your sins? He's revealed all of that to us in His Word. And if we can help you come to that knowledge, I'm not saying that I can just lay it all out for you right now, but if you've come to that understanding concerning Jesus Christ and we can help you in your obedience to God, Remember what Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, and we didn't talk about that aspect in class this morning, and I apologize. For as many of those as were baptized into Christ, as many, no more, no less, as many of those who were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. In order to receive those blessings of forgiveness, those blessings are found, as Ephesians talks about, in Christ. Well, how do I get in that relationship with Christ? Well, it's by hearing the word, believing the message, and then making that application. He tells me how to do that. I don't have to guess about it. Being baptized into that covenant relationship now. Now I stand as a Christian justified, and I live my life now as a justified Christian striving to bring my life in accordance with His Word as I continue to learn and to grow. That's what being a Christian is. And if we can help anybody this morning to do that, we would invite you to come while together we stand and sing.